I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you zoom way out and you look at the whole span of human history, you should think the last couple hundred years have been very strange. And that sometime in the next hundred centuries or so, something very big is going to have to change. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Today's episode continues this fascinating slash frightening journey I've been on with you here to understand what we should prioritise as we face potential existential, well, end times. It's really only the biggest quandary we have ever faced. And as you might have picked up, there's a whole community of big thinkers out there working on answering it from different angles. I've been gradually inviting the leaders in this space to join us here on Wild. There's been philosopher Peter Singer to discuss effective altruism, how to do the most good with the limited resources on the planet today. Then there was Will McCaskill who joined us to discuss long-termism. The most good we can do is to do actions that will positively affect everyone born after us. And here we're talking about reducing the existential risks posed by the stuff we can act on now, like AI developments and fossil fuel combustion, for instance. There was also Elise Bowen from Oxford talking about transhumanism and the long-termist implications of AI-enhanced humanity. It's a big heaving topic, which is just a bit sexy right now in various academic and mega billionaire circles. I personally am not 100% sold on the utilitarian or consequentialism angle behind it all. And just as a reminder, utilitarianism is the maxing the most good for the most number of people. And look, it's always struck me as a very blunt moral instrument when dealing with human complexity. But as I say, there is another wild idea in this big moral picture that brings it all together. And that is that this century is the most important of all centuries that we've had or will ever had. The good that we speak of, well, it needs to be done now. And this wild idea is proffered and thrashed out by Harvard effective altruist Golden Kanofsky, who also co-founded GiveWell, a charity evaluator which crunches out the most effective charities globally, as well as on the other end of the spectrum, Open Philanthropy, a foundation that researches where we should be turning our charitable intentions or attention going forward. Now, Holden hasn't just planted this most important century idea into the ether and left it there. He's committed to exploring every angle of it in an ongoing blog series, and I'll put that in the show notes for you. But let's just pause on the implication of his idea. 
If it is indeed the most important century ever, all of us listening here are custodians. We are responsible for some sort of uber important future happenings, right? Now, are we ready for such a responsibility? Are we capable of rising to it? And what should we be actually prepping for or nobly enacting? Should we drop our home renovation plans or our hobbies, our dreams, and I don't know, get really, really serious? I put all of this and more to Holden. I invite everyone to bear in mind that Holden's point is that to have a chance of solving the problems on our plate, we will need to consider a lot of seriously wild ideas and not choose between them. As he says very memorably, we live in a wild time and should be ready for anything. This is a brain-stretching episode that those of you who love an intellectual dance, I think, will just love. Holden, wonderful to talk to you all the way from San Francisco. Welcome to Wild. Thank you for having me. You actually co-started the mechanism for assessing charities according to their effectiveness, Give Well. Can you explain how it works and I suppose how you landed on $5 malaria nets? (laughs) Sure. Uh, So at one point in my career, I was just looking to donate to charity and wanted to do it in a way that would help as many people as possible, sort of like, you know, looking for a good deal on any major purchase. And that was back in early 2000s, 2004 to 2007. I was kind of going through with a bunch of coworkers this challenge of where to donate to charity and eventually decided that, uh, you know, I was kind of not happy with the existing resources out there to help donors with this kind of decision. And so we decided to leave our jobs to create a website to do research and publish research on which charities can help the most people per dollar. That was and is GiveWell. I'm no longer at GiveWell. I'm on the board. And it's an organization, GiveWell.org, that just tries to find charities you could donate to that will do as much good as possible based on strong evidence that is analyzed on the website. It tracks a few hundred million dollars per year that go to its top charities as a result of its recommendation. Some of the things we found at GiveWell, we originally were looking at work in the United States and overseas, but eventually we pivoted to focus on overseas because we just became convinced that the needs in low-income countries are just much greater than the needs in the U.S., and your money can go much further. In the U.S., you know, it might be thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, for programs, educational programs and other that have unclear benefits. Whereas, you know, in a lot of parts of the world, there might just be people who $5 could buy them a bed net that is treated with insecticide and can substantially reduce the risk that they get malaria, which is a disease that could be fatal to infants and others. It's looking for looking for the charities that do the most good. We, we ended up gravitating toward things that are in very poor parts of the world, and have very strong evidence behind them. And so those tend to be kind of health-oriented interventions. Malaria-distributed bed nets is one of the classics. So is treating children for intestinal parasites. That could be done for something like a dollar a year. And there is evidence that it kind of has has positive effects on their lives even decades into the future. Uh, There's other programs that go for nutritional or, or vitamin supplementation or other ways of tackling malaria. So that tends to be what GiveWell focuses on. And that was kind of the early part of my career was uh, helping to start that organization. There's two principles that come out of the work that effective altruism does. One is that, and I'm quoting you here from an interview <laughs> that I found in my research, that the worst place to start giving um, effectively is your own neighborhood, which is very counterintuitive, but you've just explained why. 
that leads to the other principle that really grounds effective altruism, and that is that the most good that you can do is effectively to save a life and to save as many lives as possible. And I suppose I want to ask a question that I'm often left with, and I haven't had a chance to ask Peter and Will um, this question, okay. but when we're talking consequentialism, um, which is the core, the core principle behind, I think, um, effective altruism, I'm not so sure that straight up numbers of lives saved is the basis for moral good. And there's one um, a thought experiment, which is a bit fun, which I've heard brought up with you in a previous interview, which illustrates a little what, what I'm saying. It's the one where there's a fire in a building and there's a room with a family of five in it, let's say, and there's a room with artwork worth several million dollars. What do you save? You know, do you save the family or the expensive artwork? And of course, my intuition goes, of course, I'd save the people, but effective altruism would say, well, actually, you'd solve the, save the artwork potentially because several million dollars can buy a lot of malaria nets, which would then save way more than five people's lives on the other side of the world. How do you wade through these kinds of experiments and that counterintuitive moral thinking in your work? Who would you save in that moment? Sure. Um, I want to I want to give a couple of clarifications first on things you said, if that's okay. Yeah, please do. The saving a life thing, I mean, generally, we're not uh, committed to the idea that saving lives is the only or the most important way of doing good. Some of Give All Top charities don't save any lives. So, for example, the when I talked about treating children for intestinal parasites, there's basically zero deaths caused by those parasites. So that's entirely charity that is trying to just help people have better lives. It's not going to prevent any deaths. It's not the case that effective altruism is entirely focused on saving lives. And I think we do tend to recognize there's a lot of messiness. There's a lot to debate in terms of what it means to do the most good possible. This does get into very tricky questions. And, and I'm happy to, to go into the weeds of how Gimbal tackles those questions or how some of, you know, some of the later work I've done, which is different, also tackles those questions. So if you want to get into that, we can. I did want to clarify that it's not a way of thinking that just emphasized being alive versus not being alive. I would probably go for the person. I think this is maybe maybe a difference between me and other people you've talked about uh, with, and maybe not. But for me, I, I'm not a I'm not a professional philosopher, and what I'm not really doing is trying to live or promote some kind of all encompassing philosophy that reaches into every decision you make as a human being. My story is a little bit more mundane than that, and a little bit more simple. It's just gosh, I'd like to give to charity. What charity should I give to? Well, some of these charities do things that can do enormous amounts of good per dollar that I spend and is really well supported by evidence. Some of them not so much. So I would love help deciding what charity and that's the kind of help that Gimbal tries to give. And, you know, projects that I've moved into since then are, are similar vein. It's just, hey, we're, we're trying to help people give away their money effectively. We're trying to, you know, call more attention to problems that need more attention. It's, it's, pretty cut and dried stuff. And you can be interested in these topics without being totalizing about them. So I consider myself just kind of a, a, a normal human being with a normal life. I have a family, I put their needs above like the needs of strangers in a normal way, like I think most people do. So you don't need to accept a far reaching philosophy that touches every part of your life as a human being in order to say, hey, you know what, when I uh, give away money, I'd like to do it better instead of doing it worse. And so let's do some analysis on how to do that. Yes, I'm very glad to hear you say that because I feel a little the same after being in this realm for a while. And to be honest, between you and I, 
and everyone listening, I think it can get a little culty and a little extreme at times. People sort of take it to the nth degree. But you did go ahead and start Open Philanthropy, which does deal with more speculative causes rather than, you know, sort of the stuff that's already in front of us. You start to think about, well, maybe there are some causes where we need to be, fu- that we need to be funding that are researching problems that don't yet exist or are a little bit more complex. I'm wondering if you can explain some of the principles that you wanted to address by addressing speculative causes, but also explain to us where the gaps are in the world. I have a real problem with the fact that things like the climate crisis is not being funded enough, and yet art galleries are overfunded because rich people like art galleries and they like to see their plaques on the walls of art galleries. So what are some of the challenges, what are some of the weeds that you encounter and that led you to launching Open Philanthropy? The big event that led to launching Open Philanthropy was a bit of a change in audience. So GiveWell is designed as a website that anyone can come to and it will help guide them to where to give. They don't need to know the people involved. They don't need to have a bunch of background. All of the reasoning behind what GiveWell is saying is right there on the website. And because of that, GiveWell tends to prioritize certain kinds of things. They they recommend charities where any amount you give them, $100, $1,000, million, they'll be able to use it, but they'll be able to put it to work. They tend to be very interested in things that have strong evidence behind them. So GiveWell just very explicitly says, look, there could be a lot of things in the world that do more good than our top charities, but our top charities the evidence is really strong. We're recommending things that have like a lot of studies behind them. And I think that makes sense for the audience GiveWell is serving for the mission GiveWell has. But a few years into GiveWell, we met Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskowitz. Dustin is the co-founder of Facebook and Asana. And they were asking us how they could give away their several billion dollar fortune within their lifetimes in a way that would that would do the most good possible. And that's a bit of a different question. Uh, I think when you're someone like that, you have different options. You can hire your own staff. You can build your own expertise and relationships over time. You can make the kinds of grants that start new organizations instead of just supporting existing ones. And so with the wider option space, we wanted to create kind of a version of GiveWell that would help them do the most good they could. That ended up looking quite different. It originally started off called GiveWell Labs, and it spun off into a separate organization that I'm now at called Open Philanthropy. And so in some ways, the mission is the same. There's some money, want to give it away, we want to do the most good possible. But when you're doing it on kind of behalf of a very small number of very large donors, I think it starts to make more sense to do what we call hits-based giving. So the idea of hits-based giving is that you do this very kind of high-risk philanthropy where you you might support for every 10 things you fund, maybe nine of them will completely fail to an extent that's even kind of embarrassing. But one of them hopefully succeeds so much that it more than makes up for all the rest of them. And when we first got into this area, you know, one of the first questions I asked was, has ambitious philanthropy done a lot of good in the past? Or is it all kind of BS and we should just stick with the Bennett's? And one of the things I found early on is that some of the things that philanthropy has accomplished are really, really huge and epic. A couple of my favorite examples, and we actually have about half the conference rooms at our office are are named after philanthropic success stories. So there's a lot of them. The two favorites that I have are, one, the Green Revolution was a sequence of events that's been credited with saving uh, over a billion people from starvation and resulted in a Nobel Peace Prize for Norman Borlaug. And the sequence of events was really kicked off by this kind of obscure research on 
how to make crop yields go up in Mexico. And at the time, it was just not something there was a lot of interest in. And instead of governments, it was a foundation. It was the Rockefeller Foundation just supporting this research that once they found a way to make more productive crops, they were able to kind of replicate this around the world at great scale and improve the wealth of low-income farmers uh, enormously and just lead to these incredible consequences. One of the you know major humanitarian developments of the 20th century and then another example is there's a feminist philanthropist, Catherine McCormick, who was really the only funder behind the research that led to the common oral contraceptive, the pill, which has had you know just an enormous effect on the world and was not the kind of thing that the government was was funding. When we started this kind of GiveWell Labs project that became open philanthropy, we became interested in just sort of swinging really hard for the fences in philanthropy, just doing things that might be kind of wacky and might be kind of out there, but also could be these great underappreciated opportunities. And so if we occasionally get a win, the win ought to be really big. And that is a lot of the philosophy of open philanthropy and how it differs from GiveWell is that we Instead of looking for highly evidence-backed, highly reliable, highly linear ways of helping people, we look for underappreciated issues where we might completely fail or we might uh, have an enormous effect. That is very encouraging to hear because we often don't know problems until we go forth and fund the research into those problems. What are some challenges that you are working on at the moment? So open philanthropy, I mean, an example example of work we've been doing kind of since the beginning and uh, and continue to be really interested in is farm animal welfare. There's just an enormous amount of terrible treatment of animals on factory farms throughout the world. And there is this interesting question. This is, this is where the hit space giving comes in is there's this interesting question of should we spend money trying to make the lives of farm animals better when we could instead spend that money to make the lives of humans better? And you could kind of answer the question in one of two ways. You could say, well, no, we should not help animals because we, we really, that shouldn't be the priority and, and we should be prioritizing humans. Or you could answer the question and say, well, actually, maybe what really matters is not whether you're a human or an animal. Maybe what really matters is something like whether you have the ability to suffer. Maybe in a few generations, everyone will kind of agree on this and say it was one of the worst things going on in the world at this time is the way that we treat these enormous numbers of animals. And if you end up in the second world, helping reduce the horrific and very, very large scale abuses of enormous number of animals on factory farms looks like one of the best things you could ever do with your money. So this is an example of us doing something that we may look back on and say, hey, that was kind of just not the right thing to be doing. And that was the, the wrong way of thinking about ethics, the wrong way of thinking about morality. Or we might look back and say, gosh, that was really that the number of animals we helped with each dollar we spent was enormous. And it was one of the best opportunities to do good that existed in the world at that time. That's a general theme of open philanthropy. We've worked on a number of causes in the past. Uh, you asked about the future. So some of the new areas we're going into, we've been interested in pollution, specifically South Asian air quality. We think this is a very underrated issue. And so advocacy to get better pollution controls in place could be really huge. We're also interested in generally advocating uh, for more aid to very low-income countries. People tend not to care about this very much, but when high-income countries send aid to low-income countries, we think it tends to be quite effective and extremely helpful. And the general criteria we're using across the board on these things uh, is we're looking for causes that are what we call important, neglected, and tractable. So we're looking for problems to work on where we could 
affect a lot of people or a lot of animals or a lot of something if we were to make a difference, but also where there's not already a ton of philanthropy in there. And so there might be opportunities for us to do something good that's important and neglected. And then tractable just means we actually see a path forward. We see a way in which our money could matter. So we use those criteria consistently. I've stayed away from global catastrophic risk because I'm, I'm kind of thinking that's what we're going to spend a lot of the interview on. But you know, yes. a major area for us is this idea that if you make a list of things that could kind of bring down all of human civilization, these things might be kind of low probability, but if they happen, uh, could just be enormously important. And so lowering the risks of something that brings down civilization, we think is, is a thing that society tends to ignore. Let's get to some of those global catastrophic risks. Small topic. So all that was a bit of a warm up and we'll get to the raw meaty stuff now. You have made a claim, which I find fascinating, that we are currently living in the most important century ever. You've turned it into a bit of a research project, a personal inquiry via a blog and audio series. It is really quite extensive and I'll put a link to, to that in the show notes. But it puts you in a very good position to tell us why this is the most important century ever. And I think you start with the idea that we've been growing exponentially for centuries. It's the fastest growing time in history, but there's literally not enough atoms to sustain this rate and that we could actually reach our limit this century. Could you take it from there? Sure. Part of my job now at Open Philanthropy, or maybe maybe like most of my job, is to find issues that are very important but not getting enough attention. And so I tend to very deliberately meet people who think about kind of wacky topics and explore wacky topics and look at things that you know, might be nothing, might look crazy uh, in, a, in a few decades, but also might be extremely important and neglected. I, I started to hear various arguments about global catastrophic risks in general, like open philanthropy is very interested, for example, in pandemics. We had a pandemic preparedness program starting several years before COVID, and we still continue to feel that pandemics and, and bioweapons are among the greatest threats to civilization. They're among the things that can do the most large-scale damage. Preparing for them is, is just wildly underdone. The most important century is, is another, pertains to another global catastrophic risk, and this one is AI. We could potentially this century as a civilization, we could develop AI systems that are very, very powerful, very capable to approximate, you could, you could say AI systems that are able to do all the things that humans do in order to advance science and technology. And humans have really transformed the planet largely because of our ability to kind of do science and technology, to develop our own technologies that didn't exist before, have really put us in a position of power over other animals. And if we were to develop AI systems that were able to kind of automate or replace humans in that process of science and technology, the pace of acceleration, the pace of scientific and technological advancement could accelerate enormously. So just going from there's a certain number of humans, some of them are scientists, to hey, we can we have this other thing in AI that can do everything the best human scientists can do, and we're able to copy it and run it as much as we want, that could be an enormous acceleration. This is one post in the series where I'm trying to address one particular objection to the idea that we might develop this kind of AI. Some people, including me early on, when we hear, hey, you should really watch out for the possibility that we develop AI that dramatically speeds up science and technology, some people would say, look, why would that happen this century? That If, if that, that could be the, the biggest event in history, why would that happen this century? It's, it's very random and maybe a little bit 
self-aggrandizing to say that it's the century we live in could be the one when this momentous event happens. And so an argument that I made in the series is that we already have a bunch of reasons to think that we're living in a very strange and very weird century, a very strange and very weird time. One of the points I made is that the current level of economic growth is just very high by historical standards. The last couple hundred years have just had a, a dramatically higher rate of economic growth than any of the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years of human history before that. The rate of economic growth is about, you know, is a few percent a year, which might not sound that high. One of the arguments I make in there is that if you had that level of growth for like another 10,000 years, roughly speaking, you would run out of atoms of the galaxy and you wouldn't be able to grow anymore. And so the point I'm trying to make there is that we have a very historically high level of growth. It's not a level of growth that can go on forever. And so we should broadly think that we live, if you, if you zoom way out and you look at the whole span of human history, you should think the last couple hundred years have been very strange and that sometime in the next hundred centuries or so, something very big is going to have to change. Either our growth level is going to have to fall a lot or something else is going to happen. And I had a, a number of different angles on this, a number of different arguments that we actually without saying anything about AI, we actually live in a very strange time. As a civilization, we should be paying more attention to, hey, what are the big factors that could transform the world forever? And less, you know, I think a little bit less confident that this kind of world we're all used to for the last few generations of a few percent economic growth a year, we should be a little bit less confident that this is like normal and this is the world as it always has been and always will be. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We don't question it because we feel that it's just, you know, what's normal and what has already happened and then it's the ideal. And this idea of 1% to 2% year on year is, is seen to be a good thing. But your point is, actually, it's not sustainable. We're, we live in a finite galaxy. 10,000 years is not a long time. But your point is that with AI, we may be further accelerating this to the point that that deadline is brought forward to this century, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's the big point that you, or the big issue that you see, or one of the many issues that you see with AI. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the major points I make in the series is that if you if you zoom out and look at the size of the economy throughout history and how fast it's been growing. For a lot of history, the rate of economic growth has been accelerating. It's been getting faster and faster. For the last couple hundred years, it's kind of been steady. It's been steady at this very high rate, this, this few percent a year rate. The kind of theory is that it stopped accelerating 
when a certain feedback loop broke. And so for a lot of history, the basic dynamic has been that humans will come up with a new technology. The new technology will mean they have more resources. Because they have more resources, a lot of times that results in more humans. People have more kids, the kids survive. And so you have this loop that goes more technology, more resources, more humans. And then because you have more humans, you repeat again, more technology, more resources, more humans. What changed a couple hundred years ago is that people stopped having more kids as they had more resources. And now, you know, in general, wealthier people today have, have fewer children than people who are less wealthy. When that happened, you know, standard economic growth modeling tells you that, that when that feedback loop breaks, you're going to stop getting growth acceleration. And the issue with AI is that if you had AI that could do all the same things that human science and technology people do, that would bring the feedback loop back. And so then we could have this feedback loop where we would have AI that does science, comes up with new technologies, that leads to more resources. Now you can plow those resources straight into more AIs. Now you have more eyes, you have more technology. Now you have more technology, more resources, more resources, more AIs. The feedback loop is back. AI could be more productive than humans in a lot of ways. I think in many ways, the most important one is, is that they could sort of be copied at will. And so you just have this dynamic where the more resources you have, the more of them you can run. And then that in turn gives you more resources. If you plug that loop into any kind of economic growth model, it'll tell you that you just get this incredibly explosive growth that literally if you just project the history of economic growth and say, where would this go? You get the answer that it goes to infinity, like this century. It can't actually do that. Like I said, we'd run out of atoms. It's kind of a scary possibility. And, and when you ask the question, okay, is growth good? On one hand, I personally, I think this is debatable, but I personally tend to think that economic growth has been good over the last couple hundred years. The few percent a year we're seeing has led to big reductions in poverty, big improvements in quality of life, downsides too. But I think it's been overall good. I think we have to be very careful to get too confident that that's how it always has been or always will be, because it's one thing to have growth of a few percent a year, to have the economy getting a few percent bigger every year. And it's another thing if we were to have the next tens of thousands of years of science and technology progress and economic growth and pack them into a few years. That's never happened before. We don't know what that would be like. To me, that's a possibility that has enormous upside and enormous downside. And I'm not sure that anyone has really contended yet with what it means. I'm not sure that anyone is really ready for it. Developing these AI systems that could kick off that kind of feedback loop is, to me, it's, it's something that I think could go very well, but it's fundamentally kind of a scary thing because it could happen, I think, before anyone has really contended with, with what it might mean. We're not asking those moral questions. We're not asking the spiritual and emotional questions. Do we have the capacity as humans to cope with the speed which things are happening and changing? Do we have the moral bandwidth to actually steer it in the right directions? As you say, this could actually turn into a radical utopia or dystopia. I'm going to just clarify a few things by citing back to you some points that you conclude that point to the fact that this is a special time. First of all, the long-run future is radically unfamiliar. It could be a radical utopia or dystopia or anything in between. The second point that you make is that the long-run future could come much faster than we think if the right kind of AI is developed to accelerate science and technology and, and bring in about that singularity, which we've also talked about on this podcast, you know, this idea of the acceleration loop rather than the stagnation that we thought might happen. More question marks, more uncertain, we just don't know. 
And, you know, the third point, which I've sort of mentioned already, is that that kind of AI looks more likely than not to be happening this century. And when you put all of this together, you mush it together, we're in a very special time. And the most startling point you make is that these are wild times. We should be ready for anything. What kind of anything, Holden, should we be getting ready for? I think if you were to go a few hundred years back in time and try to talk about what the future would be like, you would have a really hard time. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen as technology advances. And I think my concern is that if you get the kind of feedback Luke I'm describing, if you get the kind of AI I'm describing, we could pack hundreds of years, thousands of years, tens of thousands of years of technological progress into a very short period of time, kind of be jumping forward into a sci-fi future so on one hand, I want to say, well, I don't, I don't know. It could be anything. But there are, there are a few things I talk about in the series that I think are particular possibilities that are worth contending with. So I think one of them is, uh, what is what is often called misaligned AI. And that would be the idea that if we build very powerful AI systems, but we don't build them carefully enough, what we might end up with is, is these AI systems that kind of have their own goals that are not human goals. They are designed to change the world and they end up changing the world in ways that we don't want because they have these kind of goals they're driving toward that we didn't mean to give them, but that we gave them through the process of, of designing them not so carefully. I think based on the way that AI systems are being designed today, I think this is a real concern. I think this is something that could really happen. A lot of AI systems today, a lot of cutting edge AI, it kind of looks like just black box trial and error is the term I use. So you have an AI learning system. It'll sort of get a task where it tries the task and it fails and it gets feedback. And then it tries again and it fails and it gets feedback and it tries many, many times until it's good. And then at some point it's good at the task, but no one really knows how or why. And so in the process of kind of rewarding an AI for some behavior and discouraging other behavior, did you create something that has kind of a goal or a, you know, a habit of trying to steer the world in a particular direction that you don't particularly understand? If we design AI systems in kind of a non-cautious, careful way, we could actually end up with sort of a, a competitor to humans, uh, another thing that can design technology just like we can, but that is not trying to help us and that is not a tool for us, but instead has goals of its own. So you could call this a Terminator scenario. And, and you know, there are movies that, that kind of portray it in kind of goofy ways. But I think the fundamental concern is real. And one of the worst things that I think can happen to humanity is to have kind of AI systems that, that are competitive with humans in terms of what they're able to do, in terms of what science technology they're able to develop, but have goals of their own. So that's that's one possibility that I think is very immediate. These AI systems are getting more powerful every day. People are designing them in this particular way that doesn't give us a lot of insight into what's really going on inside them. Kind of designing these big digital brains, but we, we don't know what's happening inside the digital brains, except that they're good at the tasks we're giving them. That's one possibility that I really want to draw people's attention to. Absolutely. I'm wondering what you think of this, because this is one of my fears when people start talking about AI in excited ways. Anything that is made in our own image at the moment is surely going to be problematic because what do we do when we're threatened? We want to destroy the thing that threatens us. And that could be humans when it comes to AI. AI, I just don't feel that the people making AI are really applying the best of our ethical and moral capabilities. You've actually said this, that the people running AI are not the people we want running the world. As you say, we're sort of got this 
black box trial and error where it's just like, let's just throw a few situations at this technology and see what happens. But nobody's actually thinking through the complexities that are required to ensure that we have moral boundaries to, to what we create. This idea that we're creating in our own image, it can't end well, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't say nobody is thinking about the complexities and the difficulties. I would say that everything is moving faster than looks like a good idea to me. People are thinking about the challenges and the complexities, but there's only so much headway we've really made on them. And these are really hard challenging problems that could take a very long time to get to the point where we're happy with them. So, But there's a human limitation, Holden, right? We're like two-year-olds, right? We're great at fucking up a bedroom and making a mess and putting Lego everywhere, but we can't put it back together again and, and, and tidy up our mess. And so we're creating all of these things without really thinking about, well, if it goes wrong, what are we going to do? And that is a fundamental human limitation, I suppose. And that is not being borne in mind, as far as I can tell, and from all the debates I'm reading about around AI and the singularity. I just don't think that we're, we're ready, you know, for these wild times. I did interject. You were running through a couple of things, a, cons a few considerations. You, you ticked off one. Um, let me let you continue. <laughs> well, I would, I would agree with what you said in broad terms. I mean, I, I don't think there's no way this can end well, but I do, I, and I don't think there's no one thinking about these things, but I do think we're kind of not ready for what's coming is how it looks to me now. And I think the two year old analogy is pretty good. Toby Ord, I think, in the book The Precipice, I think compares humanity to an adolescent in the sense that we're just reaching the point where we're we're just getting powerful enough and capable enough to get ourselves in real trouble, but we haven't yet developed the wisdom to kind of keep ourselves out of trouble. So um, you know, I think that's that's a reasonably apt analogy. And I think misaligned AI is one thing that I think is not getting enough attention. I think a lot of people are talking about AI and saying how exciting it'll be or how we have to make sure that we develop it our country before someone else's country or whatever, and not enough attention on, on the fact that it, it could really be dangerous for everyone. What are some other things we can say about, about a future with, with rapid technological change? Another thing that I worry about a lot is uh, what, what I call in the series, and I know Will McCaskill has talked about this too, who went on your podcast, um, lock-in. So, you know, I do worry that if technology gets advanced enough, we might reach a point where whoever's in power could kind of keep power indefinitely or whatever, you know, whatever ideas, whatever religions, whatever qualities society has, if people wanted to, they could kind of lock them in. And throughout history, there have been people who wanted to stay in power forever, who wanted their ideology to stay important forever, but they weren't able to because people get old, we die, we don't have any way of, of stopping that. Governments are not powerful enough to have like complete insight into everything going on everywhere and complete power to shape the world as they wish. Uh, but all of these things could change if technology advanced enough. And that's something I go into some detail on uh, in the most important century series. So, you know, another thing that I that I do worry about quite a bit is that if technology advances rapidly enough, then before we really know what we're doing, we could end up with a world that's very stable. Things that happen in the next century could actually determine what kind of world we end up with for thousands of years, millions of years, billions of years, and could determine what kind of people and what kind of values 
go beyond Earth and spread throughout the galaxy. So I think when you think about technology advancing that far, that fast, that is the kind of thing that I worry about as well. And that's a major concern of mine. And I think both of these are things that I would put in the kind of global catastrophic risk category. There are things that could happen in the next hundred years that could matter for the next thousands, millions, even billions of years. And that's why I think this topic needs to be something that we take very seriously. I totally agree with you. And I've got a big bunch of questions on my on my notes in front of me in capital letters. And what I was glad to hear before we actually press record, you flagged that you've got a new project that you've just started on, a new blog series called So What? Um, dot, dot, dot. And it really does lead to this idea, well, what are we meant to do? I know that you issue in your recent series, A Call to Vigilance, I think we understand roughly what that means. But can you talk us through what the hell we're meant to do with this awareness? Sure. So in the Most Important Century series, I kind of argued, hey, there could be really big things coming. We're not really ready. I didn't do a great job saying, okay, so what do you want me to do about it? I said at the time, I said, well, look, we just we need to start by just recognizing that there could be very big things afoot. The first step is to just get more great minds thinking about what this all means and what we want to do. I do talk a lot about misaligned AI because I think it is one of the most important risks and one of the hardest to take seriously, one of the ones that gets the most overlooked. So I think a lot of people can relate to the idea that AI systems might be very powerful and that they care, for example, what country they're developed in first. But I think there is not enough attention on the idea that these systems could spin out of control and be a danger to everyone. So a lot of the series is going to be going into a bunch of detail on that and kind of why this is a real problem, why it could be hard to measure. So I think one of the one of the defining things that I worry about as we get closer and closer to powerful AI systems, and we don't have any idea when we're actually going to have them. I tend to say it's more likely than not this century, but 10 years, 20 years, 80 years, I don't know. But the closer we get, I think it's important to understand that we are not necessarily going to be able to easily measure whether our systems are safe. And so in a world where your AI systems might not be safe and you can't easily measure whether they are, I think it becomes very important to find a way to avoid reckless deployment and do the difficult work to determine whether a system is safe before they put it out. One of the big things I argue from that premise is that as AI companies move forward with making AI systems more and more capable, normal commercial incentives are not necessarily going to lead to the right actions. I think we may need a combination of companies that are voluntarily being more socially responsible than they have to be and more careful than they have to be and self-regulating and doing pro-social things they don't have to do. And we may also need, you know, regulation, third-party involvement, government involvement, et cetera, because I think the default path where people are just trying to create lucrative commercial products is not necessarily a safe path. So that's something that I plan to elaborate on a bunch in this upcoming series. And I'm going to try and get into the specifics of it, just like what are some specific ways that this could all go badly? And also, what are some specific ways this all could all go well, that we could, as a civilization, all work together to hold off on deploying systems until we are able to make them safe and to demonstrate that they're safe? What can we do to ensure that better people are developing this technology, or at least better thought processes and moral considerations are brought into the development? Have you thought through that at all? Have you got any sort of takes on that? I should probably clarify it. It's probably not a direct quote because I do think it's kind of true that the people running AI companies are not the ones who are running the world, in large part because I think there's no 
there's no one small and upper, unrepresented set of people that we should want running the world. Running the world is just, you know, kind of a, kind of a bigger job than, I, than I'd want to hand to like a few executives or something. I don't know that I would say that AI company people are unusually bad either. I don't particularly believe that. I think in many, many cases, some of the leading AI labs today are quite interested in doing things that are more socially responsible than they have to be, more careful than they have to be putting more work into safety research than pure commercial incentives would say they have to do. So I think there is a fair amount of that. Could it be better? Yeah, I definitely think it could be a lot better. I don't. I definitely wouldn't mean to single out AI company executives as unusually bad people. It's more that the thought of, of a relatively small set of people making such momentous decisions is inherently a bit scary. So the call to vigilance, what does that entail? What should we be doing as individuals to be vigilant around this? The call to vigilance is a, is a post in my series. It's a little bit of a play on a call to action because most people, most of the time when confronted with a big problem that hadn't been on their radar, their first reaction is to say, well, what can I do? And then they want to take like kind of a quick action, like make a donation, sign an yes. online petition, and then feel like they did their part. Unfortunately, I think it's just, it's very unclear what to do right now. And not everyone is in a position where they have like a thing they can do that's easily helpful. I am going through in my new series a whole bunch of options for organizations people can work at, things people can do that I think would be helpful, uh, messages people can spread that I think would be helpful. But I think a lot of it is very tricky and subtle. I think a lot of these issues are challenging. It's not always a good thing to call more attention to things in all contexts, because I think some people, if you tell them that AI is dangerous, they'll hear AI is powerful, they'll go off and rush to build it as fast as they can. At the same time as trying to give it as much advice as possible on what things people can do to be helpful, I've also tried to caution people against moving too quickly, being too urgently demanding of action, understanding that there is just a lot we don't know and a lot of confusion here. And so the call to vigilance is in place of a call to action. Instead of saying, hey, sign this petition and saying, hey, you know, if you want to be helpful, one of the things you can do is just stay vigilant, wait for your opportunity, wait for there to be something where there really is a clear action to take, and then be ready to spring into action, which is a bit of a different framework from, you know, the normal format of, yeah. of, of some kind of problem raising uh, thing. So how do you cope with it? What keeps you going? What keeps you fronting up? Sure. Uh, I mean, in some sense, the worth it part is pretty easy and straightforward. I mean, the stakes being so high, it's it's not hard to say, hey, what what is the point of work on this? The point of work on this is to, you know, prevent catastrophes. So it definitely feels worth it. And and I was highly motivated when working on GiveWell. The work I did could lead people to donate to better charities, which ultimately could result in more people kind of having better lives, longer lives, healthier lives. That was motivating to me. And this is motivating to me as well, that having kind of recently lived through a big uh, global disaster, I uh, could maybe maybe help lower the odds of, of a bigger one in the future. I don't really think as, a, as I'm just one human being, I don't really think I'm capable of rising all the way to this challenge myself. I think what I'm capable of doing is uh, is kind of like having a job and working at the job, uh, you know, the way most people work at jobs, which is pretty hard and a lot of hours a week, but it's not to an extent that I have nothing else going on. And so, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of what I try and do is I, is I do just try and say, there's a lot of problems in the world. A lot of people work on them. And I do think a lot of the most effective progress is actually made in this very unsexy way by people coming into work every day, not considering themselves personally responsible for solving the entire problem, but instead looking for ways they can help, 
putting a certain amount of hours into trying to help in that way, trying to do it as effectively as they can, working pretty hard, but then also going home and saying, you know, I can't do it all. I'm just one human being. I've got one last question for you, Holden. You mentioned Toby Ord, who's somewhat of a colleague of yours in the same, in similar space. And in his book, The Precipice, he does talk about the probabilities close to full human extinction by the end of the century at one in six. That is when you combine all of these very big risks, AI, nuclear threat, climate change, et cetera. What's your take on that probability? I think Toby and I are somewhat focused on somewhat different questions. So Toby, I mean, very related, but um, Toby's one in six is like the probability, I believe, of an existential catastrophe, which basically means that in some important sense, human civilization is is over or is permanently constrained by the end of the century. In some sense, like our chances of building a large human civilization that lasts for a long time throughout the galaxy is just over, it's done. That could be because we're all extinct extinct, or it could be because something happened that we're just never able to recover from and become kind of a, you know, a technologically powerful civilization again. That's his one in six. I think I come at the most important century with a slightly different frame. I think that existential catastrophe is something that could happen. It is a possible outcome of AI. I think it's maybe the main thing that happens if we have misaligned AI. I think I would that's probably an existential catastrophe that probably stops human civilization from maybe existing at all and, and maybe from ever you know, lasting a long time, being very large. But I think there's a whole other set of things to worry about. You know, when I talk about lock-in, I mean, I think there's, there's also this whole set of possibilities where it's just like, the future could be kind of a nice place or a really nice place or a kind of not so nice place. If this century is the time when that gets determined for kind of for good or for a very long time, that's also a very big deal. And I think that kind of adds to the probability. So the probabilities I'm looking at are... Um, you know, I, I tend to say it's more than 50-50 that we're looking at this kind of transformative AI this century. And then I think, you know, I, I would say conditional on that, it's more than 50-50 that we're looking at um, this dramatic increase in technological advancement that leads to, to something with really giant permanent-ish consequences that could be an existential risk, or it could just be that this is a century when we're determining whether things are going to be nice or not so nice. So yeah, I tend to I tend to have higher probability than Toby on just something really, well, higher probability than the one in six. I'm not sure where Toby is in the things I'm saying. Oh God, Holden, when you said that you disagreed somewhat or had slightly different take to Toby, I thought you might be <laughs> lessening, lessening that probability, but um, I tend to agree with you. What are you calling the next series? The, the, this, you know, working title, So What? Yeah. Uh, working title is the most important century too. So what do we do? Oh, okay. <laughs> I kind of like, so what? <laughs> I'll think I about it. you should work with that one. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll look out for it. I'll put links to your website so people can look out for it as well. And good luck with your work. It's very good work. Thanks so much. What did I get from that chat? I mean, it was a lot. Well, first I've got to say, the logic does stack up for me. The time is now, whether we are ready for it or like it or not. As Holden says, this makes him feel an odd mix of intensity, urgency, confusion, and hesitance. He says, I'm looking at something bigger than I ever expected to have to confront, feeling underqualified and ignorant about what to do next. This comes from his blog series. I have to say, I kind of relate, but I'll add to this. For me, it makes me feel fired up. Somehow it makes me feel a surge of relevance, importance, poignancy to my life. The lack of all of which 
will tend to make me slump into sloth and flatness. I mean, it's a real issue in my life. But I know for others, it causes sloth and slump and flatness. You know, the impossibility, the task at hand, it can just be way too overwhelming. And so you'd want to put your head in the sand. I'm wondering if that's the case for you. Does his suggestion that we just do the work as we do any job, you know, nine to five, and then we come home and shut off when we, when we get home to family? And does that provide a better framework for thinking about all of this? His remark touches on something I find myself saying to myself a lot in the meantime. You know, we still have to be human and optimize the human experience we've been gifted with, which is the basis of that question I often ask at the end of episodes, what is left if we lose it all? And I feel that this question, well, what do we do in the meantime? How do we navigate all of this? What matters if in fact we do lose it all? This quandary and the pondering of it gets us to the heart of what we want our lives to actually be about. You know, it forces our hand on the matter, which is a gift. The other thing I took away is the idea of rising not into action, at least not straight away, but into vigilance. I think that this is really sound. I mean, it reduces the overwhelm, which I think is a great thing for those of us who get paralyzed by overwhelm. And look, let's face it, we don't have all the facts yet. How can we act yet We can, however, fire up and stay abreast of the issue, alive to it, supporting efforts to monitor, you know, this AI revolution. And I'll just flag that just yesterday I saw a news report saying that a new law that will ban employers in New York City from utilizing automated employment decision tools to screen job candidates unless the technology has been subject to a bias audit has been passed. But it's all very new. And I also read today, uh, an article in Vice about how scientists increasingly can't explain how AI works. And I'll, I'll put that article into the show notes so you can read it. AI researchers are starting to make calls for all this to be regulated. And I think this is really important for us to stay on top of and to support when necessary. One other thing um, I might just suggest is you might want to read um, the novel by Kazuo Ishiguro called Clara and the Sun to get a feel for how the ethics of all of this might play out. And also listen to the episode with Elise Bowen where she gives suggestions on what to do if transhumanism bothers you. Finally, I'm going to confess that uh, that final little bit of the conversation left me in a little bit of shock. Holden puts, um, you know, the chances of a human extinction event at over 50% by the end of this century. And of course, there is that clarification, which Toby Ord also makes, that by extinction, we mean the end of human civilization as we know it. You know, it, it might be a complete wipeout of the species, or it might be a wipeout of what defines us, like, you know, all of the top of the food chain stuff, the comfort, the predictability the stuff we've evolved over 300,000 years to create and to expect from our human experience. This, I don't know how to take it except to be vigilant and ready for action. Okay, so can I ask you to pass this episode perhaps around to friends, family, colleagues, because I think it's a really important one. And maybe I'll just finish off with this. In the meantime, you know, in the meantime, also ask you to think about what matters in your meantime. As I say in this one wild and precious life, it's in the final chapter of the book. In the meantime, the meantime might be a long time and how we choose to live in this meantime, like consciously choose to live, it's likely to serve as a very wild and precious way to live, like really live. Anyway, I'll leave it there. I'll see you next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 